Amen. Thank you, band. Morning, church. Good to see you. Good to see a healthy sampling of New England Patriots jerseys sprinkled throughout the church. I do see one dear confused individual in the fourth (laughs) pew here. Listen, obviously there's a lot going on in his life. There's a lot of confusion. If we could just have a few Christians lay hands on him and just want to pray God to be at work in his heart. I know you, uh, you all want to be well rested up for the game tonight, um, but I am hoping, I'm hoping like even more than usual, I'm hoping that this is not a sermon that you fall asleep during. Um, every now and then, it is true, I do catch someone dozing off. Um, it's all right, I get it. I know some of y'all, you work really long hours. Some of you have colicky kids who are up all night. Perhaps you have narcolepsy. I don't know. I don't judge. I might judge you a little bit when you fall asleep. In my South Carolina church, Mr. Griggs, he was 130 years old. And he routinely said wildly off color and completely inappropriate things. We loved him. And so he walked up to me one day uh, and he said, Preacher, this was not one of the wildly off color things. He just said, Preacher, my doc has put me on some new medication. I might doze off at around 11.30 a.m. today. (laughs) And sure enough, midpoint of the sermon, head back, loud, guttural snoring, little bit of drool. Now, in the Bible, weird stuff happens when people fall asleep. If you're familiar with the Bible, you'll recall, for instance, Jonah. He fell asleep, and he woke up in a storm, and then he got pitched overboard. Adam fell asleep, and he woke up married. (laughs) Samson fell asleep, and he woke up bald. It can't happen, people. And then, as we're going to read today, a kid named Eutychus fell asleep in the midst of a sermon, and he actually died but only for a little while. So if you would, take your Bibles and open up to the New Testament book of Acts, chapter 20. And if you need to use a black Bible, you'll find this text on page 929. You'll find it helpful to follow along. Um, They're scattered around all over the place. Uh, So we're in the midst um, of Paul's third missionary journey. Um, He's got a team around him, a missions team, just like when we send out our teams, usually in the summer. Um, Always have a team around him, right? Um, In this case, uh, Paul's in Greece. He's about to head back to Syria, which is where that home church is in the city of, do you know? Home church? Started in Antioch, and then the mother church kind of moved up to, excuse me, started in Jerusalem. Ah, I gave it away! Started in Jerusalem, (laughs) then it moved up to Antioch. So Paul's way over here in Greece. He's about to head back. I'm going to race back to Syria, to Antioch, and then the plans, the travel plans, get changed. So we wind up in this little town of Troas, where the day of worship gets changed. And we meet this kid named Eutychus, whose whole life gets changed and orchestrating all of the change, the sovereign hand of God. So that's where we're going. Book of Acts, picking right up after last week's riot in Ephesus, the Artemis thing, if you were here. Chapter 20 is where we're going to start, beginning at the first verse. Here now, the very word of our Lord. After the uproar ceased, 
Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. When he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. There he spent three months, and when a plot was made against him by the Jews as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. Sopater, the Berean, son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him, and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus, and Gaius of Derby and Timothy, and the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus. These went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas, but we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up, dead. But Paul went down. And bent over him, and taking him in his arms, said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak, and so departed. And they took the youth away alive, and were not a little comforted. But going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Assos, intending to take Paul aboard there, where so he had arranged, for so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. And when he met us at Assos, we took him on board and went to Mytilene. And sailing from there, we came the following day opposite Chios. The next day, we touched at Samos. And the day after that, we went to Miletus, for Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia for... He was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. Thus ends the reading of God's word. So I suspect most of us in this room, unless this is your very first time uh, in a church, in which case, really glad you're here, warm welcome to you. Uh, For for most of the rest of us, I suspect um, there has been a point or two where you have struggled to stay awake in a sermon. Some of you are thinking, right now, Trav, right now. Some of you are thinking, every week, Trav. Okay, fair enough. But listen, if this is the day that it happens and you fall asleep and you fall out of the balcony and you break your neck and you die, understand, I'm doing no miracles here. We'll call Ginley Funeral Home for you, but that's all we've got. Um, likewise, the story on your lap right now, and, and, I, and I trust you leave those open um, as we work through them, the, the story on your lap, our attention naturally, of course, immediately goes to Eutychus, but I want to point out to you that there's some significant stuff referenced in here before that, and of course, bookending the whole thing is this theme of encouragement. Um, you read about it, how Paul was offering encouragement in verse 1. He's offering it again in verse 2. You read at least a synonym for it at the end of verse 12. So, the, you know, kind of an underlying question, what's the relationship between change and encouragement? First header, if you're the note-taking type, or you can just listen, but if you want to take down um, some points, here's the first one I wrote down. 
a change of plans. A change of plans. Because remember, the shouts now had died down in Ephesus. If you were with us last Sunday and you were there for the, you know, the big riot for the goddess Artemis and the temple and the, the whole thing, that had all just kind of died down. There was some litter left on the streets. Um, the city clerk is probably breathing a sigh of relief. And all you've got is that guy Demetrius who we met looking at these, these pallets of silver shrines that he can't sell because the Christians stopped buying these little gods and goddesses. Um, so uh, the riot had died down. Um, from there, uh, Paul, now after a couple of years in Ephesus, he's realizing, okay, it's, it's time to move on. He, he's built up the church there. So if you're going to follow the green line there from Ephesus, Paul heads north. Can you read that? Yeah, you can read that. He heads across the, e, uh, the Aegean Sea. He moves into Greece, and he kind of works his way out down through Macedonia. He's visiting these different churches that have been planted, or he's planting them, building them up. Um, he goes all the way down to Corinth, uh, where he winters. He hangs out there for a while. And then, like I alluded to earlier, the plan is to go right from Corinth and just shoot across the Mediterranean right back to Syria right back um, down uh, into Jerusalem because he wants to get there for the, the, the feasts. Um, but God changes his plans. Uh, Paul learns an assassin has been hired. That's not the actual word used in the text, but that is what's going on here. Um, what the text says is that they find out about this plot to take him out, verse 3. Uh, probably, a little bit of speculation here, probably he was going to be murdered on board the ship back home. And I say that because there was this whole system in the first century and preceding that, really. It was called pilgrim ships. Um, if you were a Jew, there was this entire transportation system that was in place all over the known world for Jews to make pilgrimages back to Jerusalem for the major feast like Passover and Pentecost. And so surely Paul would have been taking one of these and it would have been a very easy spot for someone to just sort of, you know, nudge him overboard. Um, which was why we now see a change of plans. Because man proposes, but God disposes, right? There's a change of travel plans here. And uh, we pause there for just a second and, and I want to say to you, in the same vein, don't be surprised, friends. When you follow the Lord with all your heart, if you have to make quite a few changes along the way, that's okay. It's quite appropriate because Christ followers are encouraged not by our circumstance, but by God's providence. It's an important theological truth. Um, you've heard it said, maybe you believed it, never, never let go of your dreams, right? That's dumb. <laughs> it's dumb. You absolutely should be letting go of your dreams. Of course, if you come to saving faith in Christ, and if we really believe this stuff, that there's an indwelling spirit, you know, changing our desires, our hopes, our aspirations, of course, 
over time from what I was, self-loving and self-seeking to, to a man who's more and more trying to chase after God, absolutely I should be transforming my dreams and my desires and my goals. Well, that's, that's completely normal. So please, you know, if God puts his finger in your life, and, and this might come with a little bit more resonance for some this morning than for others, because you might feel the finger of God in your life right now in a particular smiling providence or a frowning providence. Um, but if God does that, please don't be discouraged. Please don't be discouraged. Christ followers are encouraged not by our circumstance, but by God's providence. And so instead of sailing home, you got the purple line now, we have to go north again um, in your own life. I don't know how that's worked out. You know, hopping on a ship or walking on land, um, losing a job, getting offered another one, losing your life, getting offered eternity. The heart of man plans his way, but the, do you know it? Yeah, well, at least one Christian knows that. <laughs> Proverbs 16, that's one to commit to memory. I know you can't memorize the whole Bible, but this would be a good one. This would be a good one here. Proverbs 16, the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Because when you think about it, we're not for this murder plot. Paul's plan was to bypass Troas altogether. He wasn't even going there. And you and I never would have met Eutychus, and you would not have been able to learn this valuable lesson that if you fall asleep during one of my sermons, it could kill you. So we go back up north, we go back across the Aegean, we go back into Turkey and down to this little town of Troas where we see for the first time now a change of day. A change of day. Why is it, have you ever thought, that with, with just a few exceptions, for most of, of, of uh, the past two millennia, um, God's people have always found it best to gather on the first day of the week for our worship. I'm looking at verse 7 here. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them. Uh, this is the first time in Acts where we explicitly see the church choosing to gather on the first day of the week rather than on the seventh day, which of course was the Jewish Sabbath. So this means the, the Christian Sabbath is now being celebrated on the first day of the week. It's now being called the Lord's Day to commemorate what? Yeah, the resurrection of Christ. I mean, the, the center point of our entire faith. This, the re whole reason we do this on Sunday mornings, I'm not saying you can't worship on other days, but the reason we do it on Sunday mornings is because the, the very core of our faith, the death and subsequent resurrection of Christ, we're remembering every time we do this at 9 a.m. and 10.45 a.m. Um, I mean, I know it's just one line in your Bible, but I'm pausing right here because this one day, it's indicative of a really significant transformation that's occurring over these first years and decades of the New Testament church. Um, it's becoming, for instance, more and more clear that Christianity is not just a breakaway sect 
of, of Judaism. But this is an entirely different kind of faith altogether. It's not just one ethnicity now. It's all of them. God's kingdom is not regional. I don't even think it's global. It's universal. For instance, did you notice back up in verse 4, if you've kept your Bibles open, um, who is on Paul's missionary team? Now, I know we've got um, at least two families that are going to be having some babies join us here in the next week or so. So, for instance, Jess and Evan Allen, if you're having trouble, like, picking out some baby names, could I recommend to you, I've got an excellent selection right here in the text. Verse 4, Sopater. It just rolls right off the tongue. Or, or Sopater. Actually, I don't know how to say it. But however you say it, he was Berean. Um, remember, that was the area of Macedonia where the Christians were commended. Why? Because they searched the scripture. They understood the weight and the responsibility of studying God's word. And then you also got on the team a guy named Gaius of Derby, which means that he would have been from that strip of land called Galatia um, out in Turkey. Timothy, well, we know him pretty well. Um, he was from the town of Lystra. Tychicus and Trophimus, those would be excellent baby names, I think. They were from the city of Ephesus. Uh, Luke, the doctor, he's not actually mentioned in the text because remember, he's the one recording the text. He's an eyewitness. He's on the team. Oh, he's from Philippi. In other words, I know you just kind of, we blast right through the names. I do it too. Get to the interesting stuff. But if you take a moment and just hang out on what's being said there, you got all these different areas of the world are being represented here because God's kingdom reaches out over the whole world. It cuts across ethnicities. It cuts across even social classes. I skipped over them if you were paying attention, but middle of verse 4, those two guys from Thessalonica, check it out, Aristarchus. It's, it means pretty much like it sounds in English, aristocracy. This was a name given to a guy if that guy was part of the 1%. It was only the, you know, the top tier, the richest of the rich who got named things like Aristarchus. And then what was the name of the other guy from Thessalonica? Yes, Secundus, which is hardly a name at all. It just means number two. This is what you called a slave because you didn't, you didn't give him a name. The first slave, you call him Primus. The second slave, you called him Secundus. And you think, this is what the gospel does. It binds these people together. Christ followers are encouraged, not by our circumstance, but by God's providence. Gathered up on the exact same missions team, you've got folks from all over the known world serving beside one another. You've got Jew and Gentile. You've got the richest of the rich eating at the same table as slave class. This is remarkable for first century. And it's all part of, honestly, that change of day. It's all kind of tied together. We went from Jewish Sabbath to 
global Lord's Day. So be encouraged. Not by our circumstance, but by God's providence. Just in these 16 verses, right? You begin to see you got a change of plans. We got a change of day. And then finally, I didn't know what to call this last one, but a change of state, certainly. Um, the Christians of Trash, they're, they're gathered for worship. They gathered to break bread, which is probably the definite article shows up there in the Greek. It's not carried into the English. This is probably a reference to um, the Lord's Supper or communion. They gathered to break bread. They gathered for worship. They gathered to hear God's word preached, which if you're paying attention means they're doing the exact same stuff we're doing just like we do. Except they didn't do it in the morning um, because in the Roman world, there wasn't really a day off. So they had to get going in the evening after the workday was done, uh, which means that the sermon started, I don't know, um, 8, 9 p.m. maybe. Whenever it got going, Paul just kept on going until midnight, it says in verse 7. And then you think about that and you just sympathize with a little bit. <laughs> right? I mean, these were, you grew up in an agrarian culture. I mean, you got up while it's still dark to feed the sheep and milk the goats. And now, though the sermon's still going, but no one's leaving. They're packed into the upstairs room. They're just soaking up what Paul is saying. They're listening to this apostle preach. They're processing what he's saying about redemption and atonement and the substitutionary work of Christ, that the great exchange that I gave him my sin and he gave me his righteousness and by that I'm brought into relationship with God and he's just going and he's just going and along with everyone breathing out carbon dioxide and the lamps are burning and so the temperature is just creeping up a little bit there and it's getting a little bit stuffy in that room and now we see Eutychus. God bless him. <laughs> and his eyes are starting to go a little bit. Um, we know he's young, verse 9. Greek word is neonios. Uh, this was used of boys who were between the ages of 8 and 14 years old. Eutychus staked out a pretty good spot in the window. Remember, windows back, they didn't have glass. It was just a recessed opening in the wall. Just wanted a little fresh air. That's all. But Eutychus, he's fighting a losing battle. Because the big hand, you know, it's rounding 12 <laughs> again, right? And his head is starting to do that, that bob thing, except it's a lot more dangerous when you're in the window than it is when you're in the pew, when your forehead just whacks off the pew in front of you. Verse 9, he sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. I'm not sure why Luke said it that way, but I can guess. Um, the word there for sleep is hypnos. Obviously, we get hypnosis. The word for deep is katafero. It's the kind of word that would be used of a pebble, a pebble that's dropped into the water, and it sinks way down, and it sinks, and it sinks. And so you, you're putting yourself in that room, right? And the smoke is just curling up from those lamps that are burning. And now Paul's voice is just kind of fading in, and it's fading out, and it's fading in again. And then every head in the room snapped up when they heard that sickening thud outside as Eutychus' body hit three stories below. Um, and it killed him. The, the vocabulary and the grammar here is pretty clear. Uh, I don't think this is a princess bride, he's mostly dead situation. Um, <laughs> Uh, Luke, remember Luke the doctor, right, uh, recording this as eyewitness, so it's with some significance that he uses the word necros, dead. 
The whole congregation races downstairs. Um, if the father was there, he's standing in shock. If the mom is there, she's just wailing and crying. And then Paul throws himself on the boy's body. It's kind of reminiscent of Elijah. If you remember the the, um, dead son of the widow of Zarephath, and he lays his body out over him for a moment. Or more recently, um, uh, Paul, uh, excuse me, Peter, when he lays his body out over Dorcas, and and, and she rises from the dead. Uh, And so it's kind of the same thing here. And now Paul declares, he's alive. (laughs) He's alive. And, I, you know, I looked at this passage all week. Like, what, what am I going to say? What do I have to say about this? Um, the first thing, it occurs to me that if they fell asleep when Paul was preaching, I really shouldn't be too worked up when it happens to me. So that's encouraging for me. Um, I remember a service in South Carolina where one of our members in the midst of the evening service had a minor heart attack. Um, or even here, uh, a couple of years ago, in the early service, we had to call an ambulance. Um, but I haven't killed anyone, as far as I know. So that's a win. You know, I looked at this passage all week, wondering, well, what's the application for our church? Um, I'm thinking it's at least cover your mouth when you yawn, probably would be the application. Um, you're thinking it's don't preach so long, Trav. That's the obvious application. We might both be right. Ultimately, though, I think the account is not about falling asleep. And I think it's not about Eutychus. The great encouragement of this text is the power of God which moved through Paul to raise Eutychus from the dead. The resurrection of Eutychus, which is obviously an echo of the resurrection of Christ here. I mean, this was the most memorable service these people were ever going to attend. This is the one they're telling their grandkids about that service back, about the, the church service back when, right? So why did God do it? To display his power? To highlight his grace? To show forth his sovereign power? That these people, that these people might be encouraged? See, Christ followers are encouraged not by our circumstance, but by God's providence. Verse 12, and they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. And then it's interesting, um, as I finish up here, that in writing this, I think, well, Luke, he almost de-emphasizes the miracle by sandwiching it between Paul's sermon from the evening until midnight and then this sermon slash fellowship that happened from Eutychus until daybreak. Luke, he seems to be making the point that it is God's word, not the loud, not the dramatic, not even the miraculous, but it's God's word, faithfully taught and rightly heard, that is what's going to nourish the church over the years and the centuries and the millennia. And so can I, can I ask you, are you in a rough patch right now with your marriage or with your kids or with your finances or maybe all of the above? There's nothing wrong 
with a Christian being sad. And there's certainly nothing wrong with tears. But at the same time, we have this abiding confidence that we rest in the hand of God. And so please, walk out of here knowing Christ followers are encouraged, not by circumstance, but by God's providence. Thank you for joining us for today's message. Medway Community Church would love to welcome you as our guest one day soon. Our church family meets every Sunday morning for worship and also offers a wide variety of small group and ministry opportunities. To learn more, please visit us on the web at medwaycommunitychurch.org. We look forward to seeing you soon. Washing all my shame,